Section 1 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 10, April 1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Sources of the Saskatchewan by Walter D. Wilcox. The Saskatchewan, one of the larger rivers of North America, takes its source in the rugged fastnesses of the Rocky Mountains and flows eastward over the sparsely inhabited plains of southern Canada until it reaches Lake Winnipeg. Save for a rapid at its mouth, the river is navigable for steamboats for about 1,000 miles. Strangely enough, its two chief branches come from the same ice fields in the high Rockies, and after diverging several hundred miles, unite far out on the rolling plains about 900 miles from their source. From the Canadian Pacific Railway, the easiest way to reach the headwater tributaries of the Saskatchewan is by ascending the Bow River to its source. My friend, Mr. R. L. Barrett, and I left the station of Legan on July 12, 1896, bound northward in the hope of reaching the Athabasca Pass and measuring the height of Mount Brown and Mount Hooker. For such an extensive journey, which would require two months to accomplish, we had five saddle horses and ten pack horses to carry our provisions and camp necessaries. To manage the horses and arrange our camps, we engaged two skilled packers, Tom Lusk and Fred Stevens, the latter an expert axeman, and also a cook. On the third march from civilization, we came to the Upper Bow Lake, which is about 20 miles from the railroad. This lake, though only four miles long, has fine surroundings, being closely pressed by grand precipices hanging with ice and frequently echoing to the thunder of avalanches while its indented shores and green forests make it one of the most attractive spots in the Rockies. A muddy stream descends from a glacier beyond the head of the lake and pollutes its clear water while a trout brook comes from an upland valley lying to the northwest, and the latter stream is perhaps the true source of the bow. Up the valley, countless springs and melting snowbanks, with large tracts of swampy land, contribute their waters from every side. The level of the valley rises into a gently sloping plain. The last rivulet is passed, and one stands on the divide overlooking the little fork of Saskatchewan River. Those who have reached this region have had an opportunity of seeing one of the grandest views that the mountains offer. Far to the west are the lofty peaks of the highest range of the Canadian Rockies, buried in perpetual snow and discharging their surplus ice by glaciers in every lateral valley. Deep set amid dark precipices, such a glacier is to be seen west of the pass. From two cavernous ice tunnels, a large stream issues and sweeps in a devious course over a barren gravel wash for a mile or more till it enters a lake. Then, as the clear stream leaves the lake 
and winds away to the northwest, it is lost to view, hidden amid deep forests, and only reveals its course here and there, where it expands into one or another of the many lakes which this valley contains. Between the spurs of the summit range on the west and a parallel range on the east, the great trough or valley which carries the Little Fork and the North Fork of the Saskatchewan draws away in a nearly straight line for more than sixty miles till it is lost in the blue haze of distance. The summit of the pass is a delightful region, situated at an altitude of 6,700 feet, or only 300 feet below tree line. The woodland is consequently rather open and abounds in meadows, while the spruce trees, many of which must be four or five centuries old, have that symmetrical beauty of form rarely seen where there is less space and light in the crowded forests of the deep valleys. It seemed best to camp on the summit, as a forest fire had broken out in the Little Fork Valley some miles distant and was sweeping furiously up the mountains to the east. Mr. Barrett and one of the packers spent the next day in making a horseback excursion to investigate the extent of the fire and see if there was a way through. They returned in the evening after a hard day's travel without having reached the fire. It was evident that the distance had been much underestimated, perhaps owing to the great extent of view from the pass but it was small comfort to know that the fire was farther off than had been supposed, as we had to change our idea of its magnitude. As there was nothing to be gained by waiting, we moved a short march into the valley the next day. The descent into the Little Fork Valley is much steeper than on the other side of the pass, and in the first three miles the trail drops about 1,000 feet. These mountain trails were used by the Indians long before the whites came into the country. In every important valley, especially where game abounds, there are trails which prove of great value to the traveler. As our horses were winding through a deep forest, a bird appeared which resembled a pine bullfinch, flitting from tree to tree and following us closely. Somewhat later it gave the most remarkable instance of tameness that I have ever seen. Having followed us for about two miles, it waited in a tree during the bustle and confusion of making camp, but in the afternoon, when all was quiet and some of our men were asleep, the bird became exceedingly familiar, walking on the ground near us and finally perching on our extended hands. It was soon evident that the object of our visitor was to catch mosquitoes, which were hovering in swarms around our heads. It pecked at a ring on my hand, at our needles, and in fact any metal article, but the climax was reached when by accident the bird saw its own image in a small looking-glass which lay on the ground. Then with extended wings and open bill it uttered cries of rage and pecked madly at the glass in which an enemy appeared. Among the solitudes of mountain forests, squirrels, finches, and whiskey jacks often show unusual confidence in man, but this particular instance is remarkable, because the bird would alight on our persons even after it had been momentarily 
though gently detained several times as a prisoner in my hand. Further investigation showed that it was possible to get our horses through the fire, which had spent its energy on a large extent of green timber. So after three hours' travel from camp, we came to the burning trees, where the fire was advancing slowly as there was a calm. Then came several miles of the recently burned area, now changed to a forest of blackened sticks, some of which were already fallen, and here and there a column of smoke rising from smoldering moss, and everything half concealed in a snowy covering of ashes. At the other edge of the fire there was more danger, and frequently some tree would flash up and send a scorching heat toward us. We were chiefly anxious that the packs should not take fire and cause a stampede among the horses, so for a considerable distance we drove our animals along the edge of a lake and frequently waded deep in the water to avoid the heat of blazing trees. After an exhausting march of six hours, we made our camp in a muskeg, or swamp, about half a mile from the fire. The wind, however, which had been increasing for a time, began to carry the fire toward us, and our situation soon became alarming, when some heavy timber began to blaze and the columns of flame, shooting hundreds of feet into the air, made a terrifying roar, which caused our horses to stop feeding. At one time a funnel-shaped whirlwind, about two hundred feet high, formed over the heated area and remained there for a few moments. At the rate of progress the fire was making, we should soon have been surrounded had we not packed up and moved a mile further down the valley. The second camp was made by the side of a considerable stream, wide enough to stop the fire, but toward evening cloud banners began to form at the peaks of the mountains, and the next day, after many weeks of drought, rain fell steadily for ten hours, and fortunately extinguished for a time the fires that were destroying this beautiful valley. We were now two days' journey down the Little Fork Valley, a distance of about eighteen miles in a straight line. We remained in camp the next day to do a little survey work from a mountain to the east. From this point, at an altitude of 8,000 feet, the Little Fork Valley appears straight, deep, and comparatively narrow, with a number of lateral valleys coming in from the west side and cutting the mountain masses into projecting spurs. The strata of the mountains are for the most part nearly horizontal, and the cliffs are frequently almost vertical. There were six lakes in view from our survey point, of which two, each about a mile long, were merely expansions of the river, three were in lateral valleys, and one lay far up the valley where the river takes its source. The lateral valleys head in the summit range to the west, and probably have never been visited. The scenery is very grand near the lakes, a striking peak about 10,000 feet in height, with a precipitous rock face and wedge-shaped summit, stands guardian, and together with the jagged mountains near it, helps to give a gloomy, fjord-like appearance to the region. 
Mount Murchison is supposed to lie in a group of mountains to the east of this place, and, as seen from the Pipestone Pass by Dr. Hector, was estimated to be 13,600 feet high. It has never been seen from the Little Fork Valley, though it cannot be more than 10 miles distant. On July 22, we marched six hours and reached Saskatchewan River. The trail is very good and runs for many miles through forests of splendid timber, especially in the Great Valley of the Saskatchewan. At the forks or junction, the Saskatchewan is a rapid stream about 150 yards wide and apparently quite deep, and the pure blue waters of the Little Fork are soon lost to view in the muddy volume of the main river. The Saskatchewan Valley is about four miles wide at this point, the river itself flowing between bluffs of glacial drift, and while the massive mountains on every side are between 10,000 and 12,000 feet high, they are less imposing than usual because of their distance. The main river runs about northeast, cutting through the mountain ranges and taking its source to the southwest among the highest glacier-bearing peaks of the summit range. A very large tributary, which we call the North Fork, comes in from the northwest and joins the main river about one mile above the Little Fork. This river is not correctly placed on Palliser's map, nor was there any available information about the region whence it comes. Even stony Indians who travel through these mountains know little of this river, because it is said many years ago one of their tribe was lost, while hunting in that region, and they think he was destroyed by an evil spirit dwelling there. At all events, they will take no chances in visiting that part of the country now. Our route to the Athabasca, however, lay up this river, and our first duty was to find a ford across the Saskatchewan. A day was spent in finding a safe place, as the river was in summer flood, though not at its highest stage. Mr. Barrett, with characteristic energy, discovered a ford about one mile upstream, where the river spreads out among low sand islands to the width of nearly half a mile. A sense of relief came when, the next day, after fording the turbulent little fork, we had crossed the main river, which is of great size at this point, only 30 miles from its most distant source, and were safely on its north side. Turning northward along a high bluff, we came in a short time to the North Fork, which appears to equal the so-called Middle Fork or Main River. About one mile above its mouth, the North Fork flows between rocky banks, and there is a fall or rapid in a constricted channel blocked by immense masses of fallen cliff, where the water surges in foaming breakers and dark whirlpools. For a mile or so above this fall, there is a fine trail through a light pine forest, and then comes a burnt area with trees crossed in such confusion that it required two hours to make half a mile, and we were so much delayed here that our progress for the day could not have been more than three miles in nearly six hours. 
On the following two days, we advanced about ten miles up the valley, having a trail wherever there were green forests, but suffering much delay from burnt timber and muskegs. On one occasion, when marching along a steep bank of the river, a pack horse stumbled among loose logs and rolled over into a deep pool. The horse was carrying over two hundred pounds of flour, a burden that kept it for a short time at the bottom of the river, but after some violent struggles it came right side up and climbed out. No damage was done, however, as flour absorbs water only to a slight depth and very soon makes an impervious layer on the outside. Ten miles up the river, a stream from the west unites with the north fork. As the two streams were about equal in size, we were at a loss which one to follow in order to reach the Athabasca. In order to get a more extended view of the country, an ascent was made of a mountain which lies between the two rivers. On the summit, at an altitude of 8,400 feet, it was seen that the western stream takes its source in a large glacier about 12 miles distant. A fair idea of the branch streams was given by the valley openings, but it must be confessed that less is known about this river than of any other source of the Saskatchewan under discussion. As a result of this ascent, we were firm in the belief that our route did not lie up the western branch. The other valley, however, seemed exceedingly deep, canyon-like, in the very short distance that it was visible at all. Though the air was smoky from forest fires, in spite of considerable rainy weather of late, I tried some photographic work, and during a brief but fatal moment when I was reaching for a plate holder, the strong wind blew my camera over and broke it badly on the rough limestone rocks. The most fragile parts, the ground, glass, and lens, fortunately escaped, while the wood and brasswork were in pieces. With a toolbox carried for such emergencies, the camera was reconstructed after a few hours' labor and did excellent work later in the trip. Our men returned in the evening and reported that there was a trail in the deep valley to the northwest. The next two days we advanced only about ten miles because of the uncertainty of the trails, the rough nature of the forests, and repeated crossings of the river. Our progress was slow in spite of our custom of having one or two men explore and cut out the trail for the next day as far as possible each afternoon. In this place the river is at the bottom of a narrow valley, the sides of which are smooth precipices adorned here and there by clumps of trees clinging to the ledges. Streams and springs from far above come down in delicate curtains of spray or graceful waterfalls wafted from side to side by every breeze. The flood of glacial waters sweeps over a gravel wash in a network of channels, with the main body of water swinging from one side to another of the valley and washing against steep or inaccessible banks. This condition of things caused us to cross and recross the stream almost constantly, and though the fords were in general not more than three feet deep, the icy waters ran with such force that our crossings were not without excitement. 
In spite of the best judgment and care of our packers, horses got beyond their depth several times and had to swim across. As the saddle horses are guided by riders, they rarely lose their footing, but the pack animals, coming along in a bunch, confused by the shouting of the men and the roar of the rapids, hesitate and often enter the river a little above or below the best ford, and so get into deep water. Dangerous rapids or a log jam below make such occasions critical, not alone for the safety of the horses, but even for the success of an expedition in case a large quantity of provisions is lost. Pack horses cannot swim very far with their tight cinches, and moreover the icy waters of these mountain streams paralyze their muscles very quickly. The trail at length leaves the river and makes a rapid ascent through forests on the east side of the valley, so that in an hour we had gained one thousand feet. Through the trees we caught glimpses of magnificent scenery. The uniting streams in the canyon bottom, the mountain sides heavily timbered or rising into snow summits, and to the west an immense glacier, which was the source of the largest stream. The North Fork was rapidly dividing into its ultimate tributaries, the sound of mountain streams falling in cascades, the picturesque train of horses, each animal cautiously picking a safe passage along the rocky pathway, the splendid trees around us, our great height, and the tremendous grandeur of the mountain scenery all helped to make our surroundings most enjoyable. Above the sound of wind in the forest, there was presently heard the roar of a waterfall, and a half mile beyond we saw a large stream, apparently bursting from the top of a fine precipice and falling in one magnificent leap down a great height. Through a notch in the mountains, there was another fall, visible some miles distant, fully twice as high as the one near us. It was learned later that every stream descended into the canyon by a fall and a succession of cascades. We camped in a beautiful wooded valley with much open country at an altitude of 6,300 feet above the sea. Near our tents was the river, which at this place was a comparatively small stream of crystal clear water. In the afternoon I ascended with one of the men a small mountain which lay to the west of our camp. From this summit two passes were visible, one five miles to the north and the other more distant and toward the northwest. The view to the west was more extended. There was a large straight glacier directly before us, the one we had seen earlier in the day, which supplies the greater part of the water at the North Fork. At least six or seven miles of this glacier is visible, and it may extend much farther behind the intervening mountains. The glacier has no terminal moraine, and slopes by a very even grade to a thin, knife-like edge in which it terminates. The next day Mr. Barrett went off to climb, if possible, a mountain over 11,000 feet in altitude north of our camp while one of the packers and I started to explore the pass to the northwest. The other packer spent part of the day investigating the other pass. This division of labor was a great saving of time. 
At our conference that evening, which did not occur till midnight when the last member came into camp, it was decided that the pass to the north seemed unfavorable as a route to the Athabasca. Mr. Barrett failed in his ascent because the mountain was more distant than it appeared. The pass to the northwest was more favorable, and on the next day we moved our camp so as to be almost on the summit. The last and longest branch of the North Fork comes from a small glacial lake on one side of a meadow-like summit, and at the base of a splendid mountain, a complex mass of rocky erites and hanging glaciers. Upon further inquiry, we learned that the valley as it descended to the northwest was blocked by a glacier that came into it, and beyond that a canyon, which made this route altogether out of the question. A high valley on the right, however, offered the last and only escape for us, and after reaching an altitude of 8,000 feet, our descent began into a valley that we knew must be either the Athabasca or the Whirlpool River, which flows into the Athabasca. Thus, the most critical part of our expedition, the discovery of a pass from the Saskatchewan to the Athabasca, was safely accomplished. It is highly probable that ours is the first party to go over this route. Though now 26 days out from Lagan, we were only a little more than halfway to the Athabasca Pass, but a description of that country would carry us beyond the subject in hand. End of section 1